welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders for the gospel ministry in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington. And what you're about to hear was actually recorded on the evening of October 12th. This is the 2020 Reforum which is an event that's sponsored by our student council here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington. And this particular evening, we were here to talk about, discuss, and really celebrate the publication of the book, The Beautiful Community, written by Dr. Irwin Ince, who himself is actually an RTS Washington grad. So I hope you enjoy this evening's discussion. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Reform 2020, hosted by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, DC. I'm Timo Sazo, and I serve as the Director of Admissions here at the DC campus of RTS. And on behalf of our faculty and the Student Council, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Um, Here's what to expect for tonight. We will hear a 15-minute address by our keynote speaker. Then we will have a 40-ish minute uh, panel discussion followed by a 30-minute Q&A, and we will conclude with some brief remarks by one of our faculty members. As a a little bit of background, the reform started a few years back um, as an event and an opportunity for our local faculty to engage in conversation on important topics and issues from a reformed perspective. So far, uh, they've tackled topics like the role of creeds and confessions, Christian discipleship, theology and the arts, uh, just to name a few. Two years ago, the theme was the gospel and ethnicity, our unity in Christ in a divided world. The relationship between unity and diversity is a perennially relevant topic for those of us who claim Jesus Christ as Redeemer and Lord. And it's particularly important in the current cultural environment in the United States. And so this year, tonight, the theme will be along similar, similar lines, the gospel and the beautiful community. This theme is inspired in the recently published book by our keynote speaker, the Reverend Erwin Inns. Dr. Inns serves as the pastor uh, or a pastor at Grace Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He is also the director of the Grace D.C. Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. He holds degrees from the City College of New York, Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington, D.C., and Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He served as the 46th moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, He is a regular guest lecturer here at RTS Washington. He uh, has been married to Kim for 28 years and is the father of four children. When I grow up, I want to be like Dr. Erwin Inns. And uh, most recently, he is the author of The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best, published by IVP press. Um, So before I turn things to Dr. Inns, let me open with a word of prayer. 
For God, we praise you as the one who is and always has been a beautiful community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that while we were your enemies, you made us your children through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sure hope of the resurrection and of the new heavens and the new earth. We pray that you would be with us tonight as we consider how the good news of your grace transforms us and empowers us to be a community that reflects your nature and your actions. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please welcome Dr. Erwin Hintz. Thank you, Timo. <laughs> Good to be with you uh, this evening. Thank you to uh, my brothers here on this panel uh, tonight, to all of you who are joining us. Wish I could see you, uh, but I'm grateful to be able to share with you. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to share my screen and go through um, a short presentation um, for my uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And, uh, and I have to do the presentation because I have to utilize these nice images my publisher sent me for the, uh, for the book. So, all right, so the title for our time tonight is The Beautiful Community. And I want, to, I want to start this way and really just engage with you what my core ministry conviction is. And this has guided me through my pastoral ministry life um, into the current day. It is actually kind of the codification of my heart passion that was formed as I was doing seminary studies at, uh, at RTS DC. And it's really this, that the Ministry of Reconciliation, as demonstrated in the local church by the gathering of people from diverse backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities, that's the natural outworking of a rich covenantal theological commitment that, uh, that if we are going to live into um, the beauty of what it means to um, to be image bearers of God, uh, to understand the really uh, the, the robust covenantal framework of scripture, we will be pursuing unity and diversity as a kingdom and a gospel imperative. I want to, two scriptures that I love here um, are Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter one, verses three to 10, um, love how he sets this, this up where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let me stop here for just a second. So often when, when in our circles, at least, we engage this, this passage, we talk a lot about the nature of election, right? It's, it's, it's engaging it from that vantage point. But there's so much more that the apostle is, is honing in on here. It says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace with which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, and here it is, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Paul is starting off this letter, he's saying, this is now that Christ has come, he has lived, he has uh, been crucified, risen from the dead, ascended to the, to the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. We see the revelation of the mystery of God's will that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And that plan is to, that will is to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, to unite, to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. And that sets the trajectory for the epistle. When we get to chapter two, and we, we, we get to Paul talking about how Christ in his body has broken down the dividing wall of hostility to make one new humanity, one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile. You are the evidence to the world, Ephesian church, that the mystery of God's will has been revealed now in Christ. What once was impossible to imagine <laughs> is reality because of Jesus Christ, that Jew and Gentile are together. You're the witness to the world of this. And right, uh, one other passage, the first uh, chapter of Colossians, we right, learned this great ancient hymn, starting in verse 15, where Paul says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, first, first, he's first, he's first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Paul says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, different word than Paul uses in Ephesians, but it's the same sense that in Christ, God was now reconciling all things to himself. He's made peace by the blood of his cross. And then Paul says, you Colossians, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians, you are the evidence that God, uh, through Christ, is reconciling all things to himself. It's the same Colossians who will say in chapter 3 and verse 11, he will say to them in this book, here, Colossians, in the church, there isn't Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Right? That this reality of unity and diversity in Jesus Christ is the natural outworking of our rich covenantal theological commitment. So I want to do two things in the remaining time here. Right? I, want to, I want to set this out by saying God is beautiful community and that we are destined for beautiful community. Maybe in the Q&A, we'll talk about some practical application about how to cultivate it. But I want to, I want to uh, um, focus on these two things, that God himself is beautiful community and we are destined for beautiful community. And by that, I mean 
that unity in diversity. I am uh, heavily influenced, as my brothers on this panel know, by Herman Bovink, few quotes from him. He says that the fact is that these attributes of love and knowledge, as well as all the other attributes of God, they come alive and become real as a result of the Trinity. Apart from it, they mean mere names, sounds, empty terms. As attributes of the triune God, they come alive both to our mind and to our heart. Only by the Trinity do we begin to understand that God as he is in himself, hence also apart from the world, is the independent, eternal, omniscient, and all-benevolent one, love, holiness, and glory. The Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life, eternal beauty. He goes on to say, in God too, there's unity and diversity, diversity and unity. He says, indeed, this order and harmony is present in God absolutely. But with us, he says, in the case of creatures, we only see a faint analogy of it. Among us, he says, unity exists only by attraction, by the will and the disposition of the will. It's a moral unity that's fragile and unstable. Right? We can go into this a little bit more, but right, this is the reality when you see our creaturely lives as human beings. Right? But he says, in God, both are present, absolute unity, as well as absolute diversity. He says it's the one self-same being sustained by three hypostases. This results in the most perfect kind of community, a community of the, divine, uh, of the same beings. At the same time, it results in the most perfect diversity, a diversity of divine persons. This is a God whom we worship. God's beauty is seen most profoundly in the fact that he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In his communal life as Father, Son, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life, eternal beauty. Unity and diversity, diversity and unity. And we see this played out in the scriptures. I won't run through these passages, but these are some of the passages we see the unity of God at work, right? First um, Peter chapter one, right? um, beautiful epistle where, where right, Dr. Peter Lee, he, he, uh, he named his church Living Hope after First Peter, right? You've been born again to a living hope, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead. But before that, Peter says he's writing to these elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and on and on. And he says to them, right, this is a letter encouraging them to endure and persevere through their persecution and suffering. And he's going to tell them to endure. He's going to tell them not to be surprised, right, by, uh, by the fiery trial that they're, that they're enduring, right? But that's not how he starts the letter. He starts the letter saying to them, you're in this position, you're here as elect exiles, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That 
God himself, Father, Son, and the Spirit is at work in this thing for you. Right? God is himself beautiful community. And what that means is that it has every implication for God's intention when he says the first thing he says about humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That, that human destiny is in community. I would say even human destiny is in beautiful community. Elaine Scarry, this quote that I have on the screen is from her, her little book titled On, on Beauty and, and Being Just. And she says, and now she's talking about beauty in, in creation. She's not talking about God necessarily in that. But she says, beauty brings copies of itself into being. Right? It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. I think about God creating humanity in that way. Um, right? God did not need to make humanity. Right? It's an overflow of his love. Right? Beauty bringing a copy of itself into being. And so that means, right, at least a couple of things. It means, one, there was a royal dignity that humanity has as image bearers, right, the royal dignity from the womb to the tomb because of what God says about humanity, every individual. But it also means that we were made to image God as unity and diversity. The challenge that we have is that fracture and ghettoization uh, is the story of humanity that it has been running ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so the story of reconciliation and reunion by promise is one that God has to bring to bear if this unity and diversity is going to be manifested in the world. So a couple of things here. I'll spend a couple more minutes here and wrap this up hone in on what it means for us to be image bearers. First, individual dignity. We have a unique place in God's created world. We are creatures of incomparable value and dignity. Uh, in his book, Design for Dignity, Richard Pratt at a certain point early in the book asks his readers to put his book down and shake the hand of the next person that, they, that you come across and greet them with the words, hello, your majesty, right? because when you greet another human being, you are greeting royalty because of what God has declared. Nona Verna Harrison in her book, God's Many Splendored Image, she writes in Genesis 1.26, that word dominion speaks of royalty, which is a facet of the divine image in every human person. Royalty involves dignity and splendor, legitimate sovereignty rooted in one's very being. She says, because everyone is made in the image of God and because this image defines what it means to be human, people are fundamentally equal, regardless of the differences in wealth, education, and social status. And she writes, she says, the church preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and still preaches it now. This is, right, even in the ancient world, the church's countercultural message the fundamental equality, value, dignity, and worth of every human being because of God's declaration. 
but it also means that we're destined for beautiful community. Herman Bavink again, he says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully comprehended or realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. He says, only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head, he's getting that language, right, from Ephesians 1, right, summed up, united under Christ, right, summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole of creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. And here is our problem. Our problem is ghettoization and fracture, particularly, particularly by groups. This is a picture of a ziggurat mountain, which gets us some idea of what the Tower of Babel may have looked like in Genesis 11, where the last time in the biblical record before Revelation, humanity was one big happy family. We were one big happy family in our commitment to absolute rejection of God's explicit command and rebellion against him, unified in our sinfulness. The whole earth had one language and spoke the same words Genesis 11 once says. God had reissued the mandate to be fruitful and multiply after the flood. And humanity said, no, thank you. It says they migrated east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and said, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its height stretching to the heavens. And this is what humanity said to each other. Lest we, let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed from here over the face of all the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity said, no, thank you. We want to we wanna transgress your throne. God comes down in judgment and mercy and creates what I call ghetto living, confuses our language. We don't understand one another, right? So this is our primary issue in her commencement address from 2018, Covenant College professor, Dr. Lisa uh, Yukiko Whitebrock, she said this about our fractures. She said, sometimes we believe that dignity is a pie to be divvied up among us. We worry that if we grant dignity to one group's suffering or accounting of history, then there's less available for us. But this is foolish. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. For after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus's power. It magnifies it. So we live into this reality, right? We don't ignore the brokenness. But our ghettoization often means that we have these reinforced behaviors and ideas that create barriers for our cross-cultural life and love, our unity in diversity. Listen, two more slides and then we'll be done, I think. Uh, Jesus, here's where I want to end, yeah, really. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Right? 
um, right, he, he is preparing, right, for um, his betrayal and crucifixion. And this is at the end of that section in the upper room with the disciples, right? He's told him, it's good that I'm going away. I'm going to send the spirit, the advocate, right? And he starts praying in the beginning of the chapter, Father, I completed the work that you've given me to do. Right? Glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. And he starts praying for the 12, uh, the disciples, those who followed him in his earthly ministry. And then in verse 20, he turns his prayer attention. He says, I don't ask for these only, those who followed me in my earthly ministry, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. <laughs> What's his prayer? That they may all be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And if you read an outstanding book by a man named Scott Redd called The Wholeness Imperative, you will discover that what Jesus has on his mind in this prayer is the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's praying for his people that we would reflect the union and unity that he has with the Father. And that this would be the witness to the world that he's real. That this would be the testimony to the world that he came really and truly, right? As gospel witness, if you will. We're destined for this because this is what Jesus prayed for. I'll end here. This is from... Um, uh, book called Creator Spirit, The Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human. This is the work of the Spirit, Re renewal, reunion, reconciliation, bringing us into union with God through faith in Jesus Christ and union and unity with one another across the lines of difference. As Steve uh, Guthrie writes in his book, one may think of the spirit much more personally and creatively as an artist whose one subject is the sun and who is concerned to paint countless portraits of that subject on countless human canvases using the paints and brushes provided by countless human cultures and historical situations. It is Jesus, the incarnate son of the father and no other that the spirit seeks to portray. Each portrait is successful and creative, not because it makes of him what he's not by forming him in our likeness and conforming him to our preferences and predilections, but because it uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that is in Jesus. This is where we're headed. This is what God desires and is going to accomplish. This is for real the last slide. What the fall destroyed was union and unity with God and each other. Reunion is the story of scripture. Those words we find in scripture renewed 
reconciled, united. They are the reversal of the fractures and the divides and the breaks and the partitions of life in this world uh, and before God that was and is so desperately needed. We are truly stamped from the beginning by God for beautiful community, for union and unity, for wholeness and for shalom. All right. Amen. Erwin, dear brother, thank you truly so much, for, not just for your presentation tonight, but also for taking the time to write this book. Uh, it is such a wonderful treatment on such a very important subject. And I, this is, I know this is very sincerely important to you as, um, uh, as, as this is some thoughts that you have had and poured into for, for a lifetime. Uh, I, and, we have, uh, and we're benefiting from the wisdom uh, of your efforts. So thank you and God bless you for, for what you've done here in their service to the church here. Uh, folks, uh, for our attendees, uh, what I'd like to do is to sh uh, shift gears here and uh, now lead us into a panel discussion uh, on the subject of the beautiful community uh, with, um, uh, with our faculty uh, here. Uh, my name is Peter Lee. I teach Old Testament here at uh, RTSDC. I'm also the uh, Dean of Students. I'll be moderating our discussion here tonight. And as we get started in our panel discussion, I'd like to do so first by just introducing to you um, our family of scholars and, um, and uh, professors that are here. Uh, some of you I know are local here within the uh, Northern Virginia, Washington, DC, uh, Maryland area. And I do know that there are others coming from, uh, from, from other places that might not be familiar with our team. So if I could just take a moment to introduce them to you real quickly. Um, uh, not in any particular order, but uh, let me begin first by introducing to you uh, Dr. Scott Redd. He is our campus president uh, and my comrade in arms in teaching Old Testament here uh, at uh, RTSDC. Dr. Redd, good evening. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you, Peter. Also, I'd like to uh, introduce to you here uh, Dr. Tommy Keene. He is our professor of New Testament, uh, or what we like to refer to as inspired commentary of the scriptures and our academic dean. Uh, Tommy, great to have you with us. Great to be here, Peter. And I appreciate not jabbing me too much on that one. Uh, his co-laborer in teaching New Testament uh, also here is uh, Dr. Paul John. Dr. John is also not only a New Testament scholar and professor here, uh, he also is the senior pastor of New City, Presby uh, New City Presbyterian Church, a church that our seminary has collaborated with very closely uh, over the years. Paul, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Peter. And finally, um, uh, rounding off our faculty participants here is uh, Dr. Gray Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology, who uh, loves the Lord so much, he's actually joining us from the wee hours in the morning all the way over in Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, Gray, great to have you with us today. Wonderful to be here, Peter. And of course, uh, joining us also in our panel uh, is our uh, speaker for this evening, Dr. Erwin Ince, uh, someone who we obviously do not need, need to introduce since that was uh, already done. So uh, brothers, great to have you uh, here with us. The gospel and the beautiful community. Uh, community. Uh, what a truly wonderful, absolutely necessary topic that we need to discuss. Uh, and in many ways, it's been the focus of attention, uh, not just in the uh, in the eyes of the church, but really our community at large for the last six or seven months for obvious reasons. 
Uh, but these are discussions that have been going on even before that for the last two, three decades since the uh, civil rights movement here in the US, even the last two, three centuries, uh, the, since the birth of the church as Paul has been addressing this. And, and in many ways, the history of salvation has been an ongoing discussion um, of this theme. So lots to talk about here, uh, lots of questions to, to, to raise. If I could begin here tonight with this question, and 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 Erwin, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to. Uh, I know we just heard from you, but uh, you're you're filled with so much wisdom on this subject. Um, uh, we do have a, a wide range of different ethnic community uh, ethnic representation here within uh, well here within the D.C. area, but I suspect in other areas in the country as well. Even our faculty here, our panel group, is uh, is rep- somewhat of a of a diverse uh, community. Uh, I know you address this in your book, but maybe as a way to encourage even our attendees here to read your book, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, describe the benefits that come from an ethnically ethnically diverse community. Yeah, thanks. Uh, You know, first I would say the, the primary benefit is the glory of God in this sense that um, that's one of the things we've created to do, right, as image bearers, to reflect the glory of God to the world, right? Um, we're not God, we're image. And that's more of what we experience when we see these, this spirit-wrought unity and diversity. It speaks a supernatural message to our communities. It you know, I, I say this one like that. The world should look at the church and and marvel and wonder, like, how did that happen? Like, how are those people together? How did how did that? They're not. That doesn't compute. They're not supposed to be together, right? The so the experience in so not just reflecting this to the world, but then internally the experience of love across lines of difference. Um, is something that as we engage it, right, um, you know, in our confession, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, the communion of the saints, talks about our obligations for love. And one of the commentators on it a generation ago said, you know, this love is not based on attraction. Right? It's not love that's based on mutual attraction but it's a love that reconciles contraries, bringing into communion those who would have nothing, might have nothing in common except the fact that Jesus gave himself for them, right? And so it also then helps us to have a, a greater sense of gratitude to God for what he's done, right? In us and through us. So I'll stop there. I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. Well, if part of me wants to encourage you to keep going on, but you're so right, you, you know, uh, the word community has become sort of a buzzword in the 21st century. Everyone is craving for it. You see it everywhere uh, in professional uh, and professional sports. And you're so right. It's a supernatural thing. It's only something that, uh, that really uh, can be uh, accomplished by the spirit of God. Um, as Erwin was uh, articulating that a little bit, uh, uh, Scott, maybe if I can turn to you first. You know, he, one thing, and really one of the great things that Erwin does in his book is uh, to lay down such a 
a, a solid biblical foundation for his case. It wasn't just unity for, in diversity for unity, diversity's sake. It, he really grounds it in scripture. Um, uh, now, uh, I was wondering, uh, Scott, if you can maybe begin uh, uh, some of the thoughts in the Old Testament. What, what does the Old Testament here have to say about this question of unity in diversity? Thanks. That's a great question. I mean, I, I, Irwin did such a good job at introducing this topic and kind of walking through it that I feel like uh, I can kind of riff off of what he said a little bit because he's already touched on a lot of the major points. And the, the, the thing that I love about his treatment is how, you know, working with Bavink, he shows this Trinitarian analogy that undergirds how we think about unity and diversity, how we think about the one and the many, because really we're talking about unity and diversity at a variety of levels and areas, right? I mean, you have unity and diversity within the person, the heart, soul, and the strength, right, of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. And you have unity and diversity in um, you know, gender, even when we talk about image of God, as the image of God is introduced, it's one thing, right? The image of God, male and female, he made them in his image, right? So you have this both right there at the beginning, this unifying aspect of being image bearers, right? And yet also this diversity within it. And to a certain extent, I mean, I think Dr. Ince, what you just said about, about this showing us the glory of God, his beauty, how it aids in our worship is exactly right. This is God, according to his good pleasure, enjoys us being able to worship both within the many and the one, right? To worship in a sense that reflects that or gives expression to his character as Trinity. And, you know, you see this throughout the scripture. And I would point out in the Old Testament, um, what's always interesting to me is this kind of fluid reciprocity, this back and forth between the individual and the corporate, between the personal and the collective, even after the fall, we get this very unifying vision of what's going to come next. And it's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And they're in this global conflict. And that's very unifying of a vision, right? It's kind of major categories. And then immediately we go into the story of Cain and Abel and then Seth. And then there are these individuals. And so the Lord is not just merely dealing with these large scale categories, but he's dealing throughout the Old Testament with individuals responding in personal ways and having, you know, giving expression to general movements and redemptive history, but also being accountable for the way that they act, and yet still also being a part of this grand unifying narrative. And, and you see it show up, I mean, really in, in the Old Testament, the, the main ethnic division that has any kind of, you know, significant theological meaning is the distinction between Israel and everybody else, right? And what do you mean by Israel? You mean you are a son of Abraham, right? And yet, perhaps unexpectedly, or contrary to what we might expect when we're looking at an ancient Near Eastern belief system, right at the beginning of Israel being set aside, the Lord says, oh, and by the way, okay, this is, this is my own paraphrase of Genesis 12, okay? By the way, this isn't just about your family. This is to bless all the families of the earth, okay? Uh, it was never just about Abram and then later Abraham. It's never just about Israel. As a matter of fact, special ethical value is giving to those who are grafted in from outside, right? Um, and so you have this kind of trajectory 
throughout the Old Testament, this movement towards unifying within the diversity of the human experience. Okay, so I mean, Israel, again, uh, her being set aside is for the purpose of being a priestly nation, Exodus 19.6, right? Even in the Mosaic arrangement, they're called to be intercessors for the whole world. In Isaiah 40, you know, the famous passage made famous through, uh, through Handel's Messiah, you know, the idea that in the restoration, it's not all Israel will see the salvation of the Lord together. It's all flesh will see the salvation. We'll see Zion together, right? You can't say it in another way. There's this drawing together of the human experience in worship. And there's this trajectory throughout the whole Old Testament kind of pushing towards that. And the diversity of human experience pushing towards this unified sense of worship. Amen. There's definitely that, that pull you're seeing in the Old Testament of Israel drawing uh, nations to themselves and, and the way that they are bringing the diversity there into the corporate worship of God. Absolutely true. Um, the, um, uh, of course, it's not just an, an Old Testament theme. It's most definitely in the New as well. So I was wondering, uh, Dr. Keene, Dr. John, as our, as our uh, New Testament men, uh, I was wondering if you guys can also contribute. To, what does the New Testament have to say about this uh, theme of unity and diversity? It has a lot to say about it. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm sure if we gave you the time to kind of go on, this could be a whole um, uh, this could be a whole session in and of itself, but just maybe briefly some thoughts that you both have uh, on this subject from the New Testament's perspective of uh, unity and diversity. Uh, Tommy, Dr. Keene, if I can start with you first. Uh, sure, I was going to defer to the smart one, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to start. Uh, well, actually, you know, it's hard to beat Ephesians one. Uh, you know, Erwin just sort of started there. I, Ephesians cracks me up because it's like, it's like this Paul just the opening of his letter he doesn't even get his first sentence out and he's cosmic in scope you know the, the gospel is this universal it's got this universal orbit to it and you know, it's kind of like asking a, a friend you know how are you doing today and they they go well in the beginning you know <laughs> it all started with my birth and you're, you're kind of a little nervous because it seems bigger than you were asking well Paul does that in Ephesians 1, and for him, this is the issue. It, it's not the only issue, but the, the, the fact that, yeah, as, as Scott was kind of presenting, the question has always been, how is God going to bring the cosmos out of its fractured state and, and unite it under a sovereign Lord? And, and it's hard to get any, you know, I've got my phone here, it's hard to get any more beautiful in its in, in, in its statement than Ephesians 1.22. He put all things, talking about Christ, God the Father put all things under his feet. I think this is remarkable. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. And if you think about what Paul's doing there, it's it's a little bit backwards as we might want to think about it. We want to kind of think God gave the church to Christ as one component of the head of all things. Like Jesus is head of all things, you know, uh, the Milky Way galaxy, the world, the, all the nations, and he's also head of the church. And like the church is this also, he's head of that too. And it's actually the reverse. He, he united everything under Christ and then gave Christ as head of the church. Mm. 
and it's just a, a the, the the way he puts it kind of underlines i think what Irwin is saying in the book like the church is to image god it is to reflect god and the oneness of the father and that oneness that has now been realized in redemptive history through the son uh that, that all things united under the son so so the for Paul, this is the key redemptive historical moment. Christ raised is what brings unity in the the same kind of unity that is in the uh, that is in the Godhead is now being established on the earth, and so it is the it is the church's goal to pray, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Um, well, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to turn it over to uh, to Dr. John. Dr. John, can you, uh, if you could also add on to onto this as well. Well, since we're discussing the book of Ephesians, something I might suggest very practically to our listeners is to pay attention to the way Paul moves back and forth in this letter between you, you and we. It's interesting that's something uh, many people miss for some reason, but a good example would be in chapter 2, uh, verse 1. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then immediately afterwards in verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived. And um, I don't know really all the details here, but it does appear that Paul went through such a profound change, you know, when the gospel clicked in his life. Um, some have argued his understanding of sin changed, uh, but there's no doubt that his understanding of justification just leveled the playing field. So that now, even though he still does recognize a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and that's why he uses you and we. And his point, nevertheless, is that in the gospel, you and we have truly become one new people. And so um, that's just one practical suggestion I would make to anyone that's listening, just to read Ephesians once again and to ask why Paul, even from the very beginning, chapter one, uh, we, I think we didn't read those verses. Why does he just keep changing subjects? Uh, why does he go from you and we? And that's really, he's trying to accomplish something rhetorically by saying you and we are basically one now. It's interesting, you, you know, Paul, you say that there, there's the same kind of thing you see in the Psalter. There's this movement from I to we. You know, kind of, he, he'll speak, sometimes the worship leader will speak on his own behalf, and sometimes he'll draw in the whole congregation. And it's, it, it happens fluidly, you know, in a way that really highlights both the personal and the, you know, the corporate aspect of the worship that he's doing. Can I, can I throw First Peter in there as well? Uh, it's, it's interesting how Peter talks about the other. He refers to them as Gentiles, right? But he's talking to Gentiles and he's, he's saying, putting out way your former life as, as, as Gentiles, you, you know, uh, keep, keep your life and conduct honorable among the Gentiles, which raises the question, how does he talk about who's in? He's, the other is the Gentile. How do you talk about the community, the, the, who we are? And his answer is family. You know, we are, we're children of the son or children of the father. The, the, the profound unity is that, as Erwin was talking about, that unity that we have as sons, firstborn sons of God. And uh, maybe if I could just take my moderator hat off just for a moment. Um, uh, I, I deeply appreciated the John 17 passage that Erwin mentioned earlier, how the, the oneness of the, of the 
uh, Christian community reflecting the oneness of the Father and the Son with an evangelistic intent that it is the strongest, in many ways, the strongest witness that we have to, to an unbelieving world around us. Everyone's looking for community. Everybody is. They're desperate to find it. They're looking in everywhere they possibly can, and they can't find it because the world can't offer it. It is something that is intrinsically uh, only given and accomplished by the work of Christ through his uh, through the uh, spirit uniting work of, of the spirit of God and only the church has got it for the church to have it and to witness it is is the greatest message of the reality of the gospel that we have and and it's such a, an important wonderful thing uh, community is a supernatural thing I think we forget that uh, it's something we can't accomplish it is something only God uh, can uh, can do um, okay my moderator hat comes back on now here um, uh, we've talked about the biblical foundations for this idea of diversity uh, and unity in diversity. But uh, the other thing that Erwin does here, which is, again, so important, is not just a biblical grounds, but a theological grounds. He, he talks about the doctrine of the Trinity and the, the oneness and the, the threeness of God uh, and how that is the theological uh, foundation for diversity uh, uh, unity and diversity as well. Uh, Gray, if I can turn to you, and he cited your man, Bobbing, or our man, Bobbing, on a number of different places uh, in support of this. Um, uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on what Erwin had to say about the Trinity as sort of the theological model for the, uh, for the unity and the diversity of the church. As you know, historically, the, the inability to balance that either favor the oneness in, at the expense of the threeness of God or the emphasize the threeness in, in light of the oneness has lowered to all sorts of theological uh, problems in the, in, the, uh, in the doctrine of the Trinity. Do we see a similar type of uh, difficulty as we talk about that reflection in the community here? Yeah, thanks so much. I think Bobbing is definitely instructive for us here. You know, Bobbing's understanding that the church and humanity has originally created uh, as analogical to the Trinity is rooted in the reformed distinction between God as the archetype or the original of all things and creation as the ectype or the analogical imprint of God's being. And because humanity is created in the image of God uniquely, that pattern of unity and diversity is found in humankind in a unique and superlative way. You might see vestiges of it as well in the animal world where there's the same species or the same kind of genus right in the scientific world uh, but in the humankind there's this superlative unity and diversity that we won't find anywhere else bobbing would argue because you see that there is a moral unity between us there is a corporate solidarity between all of humankind that has been fractured as erwin uh, emphasized because of sin but what the work of the church does and what god does in the gospel of jesus christ is that the church is now a renewed community that is supposed to reflect once again that natural and organic unity, organic unity and diversity that we were supposed to have in the creation order. So I think um, that emphasis on the church being an organic, organic unity and diversity is, is important for us to keep in mind because Bobbing would argue is that sin would cause us to come up with counterfeit forms of unity and counterfeit forms of diversity. A counterfeit form of diversity is a mechanical rather than organic kind of diversity. It's not really diversity at all, but it's really atomism, where maybe in the church, you don't really have an organic incorporation of the different cultures that bind together in an organic way, where each member understands the other well, 
but rather what you have is a kind of siloed representation of different cultures side by side. They don't really interact with one another. And I think that's a real struggle that the church has. You know, we might say that we want a diverse church and we might even appoint folks to be uh, leaders in our church who are from diverse uh, or even minority cultures. But at the same time, actually, functionally, the church is a monocultural faith. This came into reality for me when I was teaching in a, in a Chinese seminary based here in Jakarta, and they wanted to be international. Uh, but they didn't realize that when they were trying to incorporate native Indonesians into the church, they didn't think about what would happen at the table, namely the, the, the fellowship meals after the church gathering. They only provided chopsticks, for example. They didn't realize that native Indonesians oftentimes ate with their hands. They didn't grow up using chopsticks. That's not something they would think about, right? And so I was just trying to pick that up. Even small things like that show us that our desire for diversity ends up into a kind of uniformity where you are uh, uh, enforcing one particular culture to others, even though you have other cultures being represented so that unity becomes uniformity, not really unity and diversity. Or you have a kind of atomism where the different cultures in the church are really just coexisting in a siloed way. And that's not really diversity either, that's atomism. So unity becomes uniformity and diversity becomes atomism. And I think Boving is so useful because he wants to say, if you have a real organic unity and diversity, you're going to be avoiding those two pitfalls. Absolutely. And um, it, it's important, at least as we discuss these things, just to realize there is a such an important biblical and theological foundation for what we do. Uh, I'd, I'd like to move us on here a little bit now just to uh, think about how. Uh, we've talked about the, the, the foundations biblically, uh, foundations theologically, but how. Uh, Erwin, if I can come back to you and just ask a particular question from your book. Uh, one thing that you encouraged as a way to create this beautiful community is the, the hiring of minority pastors on, uh, on churches. Um, you, you also talked about the, uh, the, the error of tokenism and how you can um, treat an ethnic minority uh, as sort of a statistic, you know, a percentage, not necessarily as, a, as an image bearer, as a child of God. Uh, I was wondering, how, how do we do this? How, how can we bring on um, uh, uh, minor, minority pastors or pastors from a different uh, ethnicity without committing the error of tokenism? Well, it's a great question, um, Peter, and it really along the same lines of what Gray was just expressing in that example with the uh, the Chinese church that wants to be in, you know, here's the reality, right? These fractures are not limited to the United States of America, right? This is a human issue. Everywhere in the world, you will find these dynamics in some way, shape, or form. And so now the question becomes, to, you know, so let's talk about tokenism. Tokenism, very, I don't know that, um, that any kind of majority culture church has as an active thought in their mind, we want to pursue tokenism, <laughs> right? We, we want to, right, this, right? Nobody's thinking that, right? But you have to start asking yourself some probative questions to say, okay, we want to grow in pursuing unity and diversity in our community, right? Loving our neighbors well across lines of difference in Jesus' name. So 
you have to start asking, okay, well, who are we, <laughs> right? Who are we um, as, a, as a Christian community? And what I mean by that is, what are some of the cultural dynamics here? Like that, that probative question that starts to say, and it's not to say we want to um, think that this is something sinful. No, there's no, right? Because there's no non-cultural way of doing life or the, yeah. the Christian life at all, even church life, right? We make decisions and choices about the content of our liturgy, the style of our, right? Our life together. And so those kinds of probative questions to say, what are, who are we culturally here, right? And what ways does that potentially hinder people, not just hinder, hinder people who are different from finding a real sense of home and belonging, but also do we, what ways do we communicate this cultural dynamic that's, that we're unaware of, that we just, we just make assumptions, right? Um, and that other people are gonna pick up on, but this just the, it's just the water that we swim in. Right. So part of that process, learning how to ask good questions of yourselves, learning how to, to how to examine your hearts. Why do we want to do this? What kind of burden are we potentially putting on this leader or staff person that we want to bring in? Are we expecting that person to be the representative of a whole group? Like, you know, in the field of dreams, if you if you bring them, they will come kind of thing. Right? Um, are, are we. Again, and none of those things, I would say most of the time, are not conscious thoughts. That's why we have to do some probing. That's why we have to ask good questions. That's why we often, yeah, I say in my book as well, seek outside help as well <laughs> to help us know what kind of questions and seek, see the dynamics at play here at, a, at our particular church. So Erwin, let me ask a follow-up question to that. Um, do you think that these reflections might actually lead to inaction. Um, mm. They're very good questions. And at the same time, I don't want to say to some degree tokenism is necessary, but it could be perceived like that. And do you think that this might be, I don't mean to ask a lead question, but <laughs> my two cents is that churches should sometimes take the risk of appearing to engage in tokenism. Because my take on this is that this is going to be very messy. It's a necessary messiness, right? And so, like, as I listen to you, do you think there's this balance for, yes, we have to ask these deep, probing, penetrating questions. Do you think there's also a place where a church just has to also accept that some might feel like they're engaged in tokenism? Because I still think that that's better than not doing anything at all. So I just want to, you know, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for that question. Uh, I, you know, the, our Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission, we say we, we're striving to equip churches and, and Christian organizations with the competence and confidence to welcome others the way Jesus welcomes us. And we use that word confidence intentionally because very often there's a paralyzing fear, like, oh, I'm going to mess up. I don't want to. <laughs> so I don't, we don't do anything. Right. Um, so let me answer your question in, in, in a couple of ways. One, it's not an either or, so it's a both and. So if, I, if we might appear to others to be 
um, uh, to be doing something that's tokenizing to, you know, people who are not like the majority here by hiring somebody from a diverse group, right? So my concern is not sim is not really with what it appears to be in terms of um, that preventing you from doing something. My concern is more, what is the experience going to be of the person or the people, right? And how do you, in the, within the community, how do you engage in such a way? So that's the purpose of asking those probative questions. It's so that the people would find a real sense of welcome and belonging within our church context, right? That they don't, ex that they're not, that their primary experience is not, oh, I'm kind of a token here, right? That, but they're experiencing welcome, embrace, love, right? Not, not uh, ease, right? <laughs> to, to your point. It's, there's no non-messy way to do it, right? But that, that how do we engage our, and, and do that kind of probative examination so that the folks who are with us feel a sense of welcome and belonging, right? Even if it might appear to the outside world, you know, that, uh, oh, that, are, they, are they doing some tokening, token stuff here, you know? Um, and so, I, and so, you know, let me say this, right? And this is off, off. So, just an example, right? This is a couple of years ago, Paul, right? When you invited me and I came and I preached uh, at uh, at New City, and, uh, and and Matt was doing videotaping, video recording for some RTS material because I was being featured in something. And we got some of that video. So on the ICCM website, part of some of that ICCM uh, website is me preaching at New City, greeting people afterwards, hugging people, you know. Um, and it might look and say, well, this is, he's the only black guy, you know, in all of this, this, uh, this whole setting, right? But that wasn't my experience when I went to New City, right? That wasn't my experience when I engaged with your congregation, right? I wasn't feeling like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a token black guy experiencing something off here. I was experiencing real love, Christian love and embrace, right? So, so even if it might appear some uh, one way, that it's not necessarily what the truth is based on what people are experiencing in the community as priority. It, it's definitely gonna be a, uh, a a um, messy scenario, as Paul said. There's got to be a lot of heart and genuineness and love towards one another that we need to apply. Uh, brothers, if I could do this, um, I definitely want to, I have more questions here, but uh, I, I definitely want to take an opportunity to try to discuss ways in which we can try to um, build together this uh, unity and diversity that Erwin um, has been trying to elaborate in his book. We've talked about the biblical theological foundations. Uh, so if, if I could just maybe raise it this way, and, and I'd like perhaps just full corporate uh, panel uh, contribution here, uh, as much as you can though brief, because I do have some questions here uh, from our attendees that I'd like to get at. But uh, just quoting from Irwin's book here, if I can formulate the question this way, he says at one point, 
We may live in an age of radical multinational connection due to development of new social media and technology, but there remains a drought of multinational communion. In other words, we've got the tools to be able to build unity and diversity, but we, we don't really have it in, in a more organic type of a way. He also says, diversity is not just a generalization for a worldwide body, but a specific reality for individual churches and local communities. Um, all of this, if all of this is true, then, then why are we having such a hard time with this? Uh, and, and I guess the more important question is, uh, if you could all maybe just give me one way that we can try to build this unity uh, in diversity. You know, you, you go to any church now, uh, the majority of churches, I suspect, are going to be more uh, mono-ethnic. Um, and, uh, uh, and yet here is a, a strong biblical call that we've discussed for a sense of unity and diversity. So uh, what, why is this difficult? And if you could give me perhaps just one thought that you have on something practical that, uh, that we can take away, that we can try to implement uh, to create this more uh, unity and diversity type, uh, type of a thing. Uh, Erwin is setting aside, I mean, he wrote a whole book on this thing, so maybe we will allow him uh, a pass, but uh, uh, the, the rest of us here, if we can uh, uh, contribute this uh, on this idea here. I think, well, there, there's an issue that arises on one side, which is finitude, which we've already talked about a little bit. There's, there's the finitude of being human, and there's going to be a certain fractiousness, perhaps, that comes out of that, at least on this side of the new heavens and new earth. Um, but as, as is often the case, because of sin, corruption can slide in even through the most maybe benign seeming finitude. And um, on the other side too, there's, there's clear fragmentation and fractiousness that comes from deep generational wickedness, right? And it would be wrong to say, oh, this is merely because of finitude or something along those lines. I think particularly the church in the, in the West, particularly the church in the United States is Continuing, continuing to deal with the centuries-long cycle of sin and judgment and corruption from, in particular, I mean, I'm just going to talk about one particular aspect, but it's a significant one, which is the treatment of African Americans in the, in the United States for the, the centuries of its founding and then followed by Jim Crow and then the social injustice, even since the, the period of the civil rights um, legislation that changed so much. And there is, there is a long-term cycle of sin and abuse that the church and the nation are still reeling from. And we see this, I think, in our, in, 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 and we see this in the news, we see this in our relationships, we see this in our churches, as we're talking about, hey, we've got this great tool set, which is the gospel, which is unifying. Um, we have to remember, too, that we can't, um, we can't belittle or despise the incredible uh, trajectory and history of, the, of that centuries-long wickedness. And as a result, I mean, I think, I think one of the things, what, what can we do? I think there's a, there's a, to a certain extent, there needs to be um, a deep sense of listening and um, collaborating in a loving way, not merely through social media or articulating dictums to one another, but sitting down and humbly seeking 
to hear and to listen and to come alongside one another. And I, and I think that's a hard thing. That's hard because that's hard to quantify in the news. It's hard to quantify in the public discourse, but there's this coming together and loving one another and letting that love be sacrificial and be restorative because we do believe in a set injustice. Bible talks about justice and it's a restorative justice and we need to be committed to that even when it means sacrificing perhaps some of your own comfort, security, and convenience. I think it's very important for especially elders and pastors to really wrestle with this question of whether the pursuit of diversity is uh, accords with the gospel. Now, obviously, you know, I think everyone in this panel is like, yes, this is a, this is a no-brainer. But I do think there are still many who suppose that not just having, because, you know, that's, your church is what it is, but just maintaining a mono-ethnic culture. And I, I like the way that Dr. Gray, he uh, nuanced it. But um, I think that there's still an impulse out there that is okay with it and even promotes it. I actually do think that before we can effect change, there's gotta be this deep conviction that what we're talking about here is not optional, you know? And um, I, I personally do not think that, I know I'm speaking general, like generalizations here. I don't know if many key leaders in the church have arrived at that. I think that some believe, hey, this is nice. You know, like, hey, if that's what you want to do, then that's fine. But, you know, really what's at stake here isn't really a gospel thing, you know, things like that. I think that even though this doesn't sound practical, you're not going to affect, you're not going to see change or you're not going to see persevering change because we, we already talked about this. This is going to be very difficult and messy. The only way I think you as a pastor, let's say you're a pastor and you and your session come to this point of believing this is not just a fashion, like a fad, but this is something that really the gospel calls us to do. If you attempt to lead your church that has basically been monocultural, monoethnic for at least one or two generations, right? I think the only thing that will sustain you is really conviction that this is what the word of God calls us to. So as, as theoretical as it might sound, I still think that for many leaders, it's still wrestling with whether we are talking here about a primary issue of scripture or secondary issue. I think everyone on this panel believes this is a primary issue, but I don't think that that is as pervasive as we might suggest. And so I would actually challenge lovingly, because we are one church here, lovingly challenge pastors and elders, deacons to really take this to heart and ask whether they have reached the point where they believe in the diversity of the church is worthwhile to pursue that even if this is going to be difficult, painful, they're going to continue to do so. So that would be my uh, challenge or encouragement application. All righty. Anything else from our panelists on, on uh, this question of how? How can we accomplish this? I was just, this is a, a brief reflection, but the one tool that we have at our disposal and a good biblical word 
for thinking about how we minister cross-culturally, but then also just how we unite people that are otherwise diverse. I mean, we're, we're talking about ethnic diversity by and large here, but one of the questions in the Q&A that I'll kind of vector into this is what about, uh, what about issues? What, what about when you're in a community or a culture or a, even a, a country where there just isn't a lot of ethnic diversity? What then? How do you pursue this? And we're dealing with an issue that is hot right now for our culture, and, and we need to think through those kinds of things. Um, but of course, diversity represents itself in a number of different areas that are biblically discussed, right? It, it's not just ethnic diversity, it's gifts, it's the different ways that God has made us, um, it's, it's uh, diversity of wealth, all of these kinds of things which can divide, which can fracture, to use Irwin's language, which can fracture the church and the society. And while we're focused on this, this issue, there's, it is a part of this big, broader church-wide issue. And in that, in, in, in that kind of how-to framework that, Peter, that you were addressing, one of the biblical ideas that Paul puts forward is partnership. Establish partners, raise up leaders who are different than you, and work with them. And in my experience as a pastor, uh, those have been some of the most fruitful relationships and time spent that, that where I'm not trying to do this, I'm not trying to solve the problem on my own, but I'm solving the problem by actually connecting with other people across the world and, and across the, 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 the various unique ways that God has created us to do one thing to honor Christ and to promote his name in the world. And, and, and that idea of establishing fruitful partnerships with people that you might not otherwise um, want to do that with, I think it have a, it's hard, but it can have a profound effect. Amen. It, it, it's something, oh, I'm sorry. Did I interrupt someone? That's all right. Go ahead, oh, Peter. Yeah, go ahead, Gray. No, yeah, thanks. I think one thing we could do is all very practically is not to be afraid to bring out all the various facets of the gospel that could hit different communities and different cultures in different ways. I think especially in a, in a Western context, we like to emphasize that Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins, clears us of our guilt, and gives us renewal. Uh, but I think we have to bring out other aspects of the gospel, like Jesus Christ honoring us, right? That, that through Jesus Christ's work, we've been adopted by a new father, that uh, uh, fatherhood emphasis would really hit, I think, someone in an honor-shame context in a very fruitful way. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to talk about Jesus Christ bringing about liberation, bringing about justice. And so instead of saying that the gospel is just one particular dimension and we're kind of suspicious about other aspects of the gospel being proclaimed, right? The gospel is about forgiveness of sins. It's not about justice or the gospel is about justice. It's not about honor and shame. I think we have to see that the work of Christ is big enough to encompass all of these different facets that hits different communities in different ways without compromising any side of the gospel, right? So I think we should, we should be unafraid to bring, all, bring out all those aspects of the gospel that we might be unfamiliar with just because our culture has different needs. So that would be one, one thing we could do. Amen. Uh, Erwin, I know that, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, we're talking about practical ways that we can do this. And of course, you, you have given more thought and wisdom to this perhaps than, uh, than many of us here. 
I guess I don't want to shut you off here. What, can you help us out here? What would you say uh, as, as uh, a succinct and as brief as you can? <laughs> as brief as I can. Well, look, I, I mean, I, the, the brothers have really hit on some key things that I've, are implications of what I talk about in the book. I mean, for, for Paul, you know, when he talks about, I don't know how committed people are. Like my first application is devote to the doctrine. Like if you're going to pursue it practically, you have to be convinced that this resonates with the heart of God, that this is gospel kingdom mission and work, right? And that is not simply that you're doing it as an offshoot or as a tangent, but it's at the heart. So, so that practically, right? Preaching, teaching, engaging the church in such a way that the Spirit of God works by and with the Word of God, right? To bring people to certain convictions and show them from the standpoint of the scriptures what God's heart is, right? Um, and then, then the kinds of asking those kinds of probative questions isn't, so, so what, what, what Tommy and Gray were saying really kind of combine because practically speaking, right, partnerships are a key aspect of engaging. So how am I going to learn from what right, Gray was saying? How am I going to learn these differences and what might resonate more with people who come from a different background, right? That, oh, this facet of gospel truth resonates more in this cultural context with folks with this background, unless I'm forming relationships, I'm actively seeking and pursuing those relationships, right? So some of the great uh, uh, conversations that I have with pastors, like, yeah, we're trying to, we're forming like a network of racially, ethnically, socioeconomically diverse pastors in our city so we can learn from each other, right? So we can know how best to support, serve, love. That, and that might not result in radical demographic shift in any one congregation, but it does help these churches begin to pursue neighbor love across lines of difference, right? And so these are just some practical things to, to engage it, but it's got to start with where our heart is, formed by a conviction from the Word of God. Amen. Well, brothers, thank you so much. Uh, this is a conversation that can go on forever, and uh, we definitely need to talk about this some more. But I, I would like to maybe shift gears just briefly with the time that we have left and, and to uh, field some of the questions that have been sent uh, by our attendees. And for our attenders, uh, thank you for these questions, truly. I, I really wish we can get to all of them. These guys really are the ones that you want to ask these questions to. And if I don't get to your question, please forgive me. Uh, but let me encourage you to perhaps even be willing to contact us directly with these questions if I don't get to yours. But one that I'd like to uh, uh, get at, and we've dealt with some of the questions um, uh, that were asked here about, uh, for example, what does beautiful community look like in a monocultural region where uh, the diversity is not there? Uh, Dr. Keene mentioned some of the other aspects of diversity, not just ethnic, that needs to be addressed. Um, I'd like to ask this question here. Considering different historical perspectives, how can white evangelicals better engage with their black brothers and sisters? How can they better learn and engage with the black perspective? Let me open that up uh, for 
for anyone here to, to answer. Uh, any thoughts on this question here? I think it would be helpful actually to widen that question. That would just be my only thought. The reason why I say that it's not just a white black issue, right? I think that I would ask the question more broadly. Like for instance, I'm Korean American and I do think that it's necessary for more Korean Americans to engage white people and black people and all the other people in the world with the same questions. So that would be just my quick comment on that question. I, I, I put it this way, the, a posture of being more curious than confident, right? In, in this, so I take the position of a learner, right? That I, that, that, and so I don't mean not being confident in Christ and in the gospel. What I mean is that I, knowing that I don't know, and that I have to be willing to engage in such a way that I'm not listening to respond, but I'm listening to hear and learn and empathize from the, so, and secondly, I would say this, story over statistics. So very often in these conversations, we will hear, well, you know, stat, the statistics are, this is the issue in society, stats say, right? And that shuts us off from hearing story, the lived experience of people, right? Collectively, individually, that may be generations old, right? And so, but that all comes with a listening and learning posture where not just I'm learning from African-American or people from another cultural context, but I'm actually doing some other stuff on my own as well. I'm doing some reading, right? I'm doing some engaging and not just putting the burden on another individual person to, to instruct or to help me in this conversation. But I'm taking some initiative in engaging and reading and engaging with some folks who I might not have typically um, read or engaged prior. All righty, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, I, look, real quick, Peter, I, I love that. I, I love how Irwin in his book highlights how this points us to the glory of God. So I think there's an, af there's an effective aspect to this is about realigning your affections towards the beauty of a varied experience and engaging and encountering different perspectives. And I think there's something, there is a, I mean, I kind of will warn our, our audience, there's a bit of a bug too. You know, you can catch the bug of realizing, wait a minute, there are these rich expressions of Christian community that um, I haven't experienced. And there's, there's a beauty to it. Your heart can become inclined towards it. And you have to be careful. I think you have to keep worship and you have to keep the person of God, the Godhead ahead in, in front of you. Um, because there's, of course, like sort of an imperial way, you know, a, a, a colonizing way that this can happen where you're just trying to get experiences, right? And that's not what you want. But what you are doing is you're recognizing that, you know, just as we're promised, we've been talking about in scripture, you know, that every tongue will confess that this is the richness of the body of Christ on earth, that we can have a better appreciation of the richness of the body of Christ, the richness of the redeemed image of God 
through these interactions. So I think there's something about your heart being inclined towards it that, that helps a lot. Amen. Uh, let me ask this question as well that comes. It, it, it's, it's a very wonderful question and a very humble one. Uh, are there concrete examples of established mono-ethnic churches that have righted the ship, so to speak, uh, and successfully experienced a more beautiful diversity uh, within the church? Um, what were some of the hospitable actions that they have taken and that were successful? Uh, were they part of examining practices outside of corporate worship, um, or did it also include accommodating liturgy worship? I guess the question is an example of a church that has done this well, and what were some of the things that they did well to help bring about this unity in diversity? Yeah, let me share a couple of examples that come to mind. And let me um, start out by saying, these are not about stories about churches arriving, right? This is not about, there's no arrival until glory. Right? We're always in this journey and pursuit. That said, one, one, one that comes to mind, the first one that comes to mind is Grace Presbyterian Church in Dover, Delaware. Years ago, uh, Pastor Jonathan Seda, who's, who's um, retiring now, he, he, he came to a particular conviction, that same heart conviction, studying Ephesians, <laughs> right? Um, and said, oh, wait a second. Paul's in prison, and he's in prison not for the gospel, he says, but for the mystery of the gospel. Well, what's the mystery of the gospel that got him in so much trouble? Oh, look, it's Jew and Gentile together in the same body. And, and so he begins to take his church on a journey. Uh, one of the major uh, changes they make after preaching through Ephesians, taking time, they hired an African-American pastor, Kenny Foster, and, um, and immediately began to share the preaching responsibilities 50-50, um, kind of establish, and this is, you know, I would say it's a majority white church, um, uh, began to have, right, in, look at their practices, worship music, um, um, and, and over the course of time, so actually Kenny is about to become the senior pastor of the church as John is, is retiring. But this is, we're talking, I don't know, 12 to 14 years of this process with them, um, moving to this point where, uh, and I don't, I don't know the demographics of the church, but I know there's been substantive change and shift even in that pursuit and, and love across lines of difference, right? Uh, but it wasn't, you know, we've used the word messy, right? That there were, there were lots of challenges at the outset when John says, you know, we're gonna start splitting the, immediately split, split the preaching 50-50, right? Um, and people having to, wanting to, people begin embracing Kenny as, as their pastor as well, right? Um, another example, this church is, uh, is still on, on a journey as well, that comes to mind of making major efforts is First Presbyterian Church of Augusta in Georgia. This was primarily under the pastorate of uh, George Robertson. 
uh, who's now at, um, in Memphis at Second Pres, Memphis. But the, right, First Pres Augusta, you're talking about history, right? Jefferson was president when First Pres Augusta was, was founded, right? Um, that, that church hosted the first general assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States, right? At that church, right? So that's, that's the, the history, right? And he comes and has this heart, heart passion and begins to engage the church, begins to expose the church to these ideas, begins to be um, model as himself as the chief repenter on these issues of lack of understanding about race and racism and, and injustice, engaging ethnic minorities through their campus ministry um, to be voices at the church, helping him understand, hiring people of staff. So it's not, you go to First President Augusta, it's not as majority white, majority black, right? Um, but they have clearly been on a, a healthy trajectory, right? And so, so those are a couple of examples. It start, leadership is key, in other words, in both of these examples. Leadership is key. What are our pastors modeling, right? What are they willing to press into and keep it, right? Keep the, keep the word of God front and center as a conviction there and then begin some practical steps in the context of worship, in the context of staffing, in the context of conversations around issues of race, justice, reconciliation, and the like. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for this evening. We've had an hour and a half to talk about it, and I think we can get a sense of that. There's so much more uh, that needs to be uh, said here. If I could just uh, maybe close us, uh, before turning it over to Dr. Red to close us for the evening, uh, just encourage uh, our attendees, uh, really, if you have not done so, let me encourage you to get a copy of uh, Dr. Erwin Ince's book. Uh, this would be a great way for your individual churches or, or Christian organizations, whether it's a campus ministry or, or whatever ministry context you might be in, uh, to begin some real significant conversations. Not only does he really lay a solid biblical theological foundation for this, he really gives some real um, penetrating practical ways to really probe this question and to really uh, discuss it, uh, ways to... Um, build a sense of unity in our diversity. So uh, thank you everyone for attendance. Thank you, my, our, my brothers here for your contribution and for uh, sharing this evening of discussion uh, with us. Uh, Dr. Red, could you uh, close us with a few uh, closing words? I, I would love to. Uh, and thank you everyone. Uh, I thank you with Peter for participating in this. Thank you, especially Erwin for your time and, and taking a moment away from your family and uh, and sharing with us. And we thank you for your work in the church in the D.C. area and around the United States and, uh, Lord willing, around the world. And we're glad that we get to have you as an interlocutor. Um, so let's, uh, let's go ahead, brothers. Well, actually, before we close in prayer, we say one more thing. I know there was a, a handful of questions that we didn't get to. Um, uh, we appreciate you asking those attendees. If you want to be a part of conversations like this one, uh, let me point you in the direct direction of a great local seminary. Reform Theological uh, Seminary in Washington, D.C. Um, this, kind of, this is the kind of discussion that we have regularly in our classes, whether it's the Christ Culture and, and Contextualization course or um, 
courses where we're delving into the character of God and its ethical implications. Um, so we love having these conversations. And if you find yourself drawn to these kind of conversations and you want to go more deep into them, uh, please consider joining us in our learning community here at RTS Washington. With that said, let us close in prayer. Our God, triune God, we rejoice and we celebrate your character. There's none like you. As the psalmist says, who is like you? The answer is no one. And before the beginning of time, you set the course of this world and its creation uh, into play. You sustain it, you hold it together, and you draw it towards, according to your good pleasure, your good ends. I thank you, Lord, that we could have conversations like this one tonight. I thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have seen him revealed, and we have seen where his heart lies. We've seen his desire for unity amongst and amidst the diversity of his body, the church. I pray, Lord, as we consider these things, I pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us charity towards one another, that you give us a clarity and a discernment to discern what is right and wrong, what is unneedful and what's needful, what's necessary and what's secondary. I pray, dear Lord, that you would give us hearts that are repentant, that would be drawn to you. Holy Spirit, show us if there's a hurtful way in us or in our communities. Lead us in your everlasting way. It'll take a miracle for that to happen, Lord, and so that's what we do. We lay ourselves at your feet. And we ask you, Lord, to heal this church, to heal these individual churches. And dear Lord, we pray for the community in which we serve. We pray for our leaders, that you would draw them, Lord, to you, and that they would have a similar desire, Lord, for justice, dear Lord, for reconciliation. I thank you for Erwin Ince. I thank you for his work. I pray that his work will continue to bear fruit as all of the pastors and the churches touched by this conversation and touched by these issues. We pray the same, Lord, that their work would bear fruit in the spirit of Jesus Christ. To the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.